morning. God has gathered us together today. Isn't that amazing? He has brought us together. We have the great privilege to worship Him, uh, to sing praises to Him, and now to open up the Word together. And this is the day the Lord has made. We can rejoice and be glad in it. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And when you find that, if you are able and willing, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. We thank you we can come to worship today, and we pray as we look at your word today, you would teach us and that we would receive what you have for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. I remember singing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in church as a kid, and not understanding or really caring what it meant or why we sang it. It was just a comfortable song, a comforting song, and not much more to me. But today it points to a truth that I have staked my life upon. God's faithfulness. To be faithful means to be true to a person to whom one is bound by a promise or a covenant or a pledge. Faithfulness is being able to be called upon and trusted to complete whatever task is required. It's the ability to say no to temptations and that assault the senses and stay the course, fixed on a goal. It's being trustworthy, truly loyal to a person or to a cause or to a calling. Faithfulness is a virtue that is seldom seen in our fickle society nowadays. We as believers are called to be faithful, but even we have a hard time seeing it sometimes in our own homes and in our own lives. But faithful is what God is. I remember the first time I read Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, and the words, great is thy faithfulness, and thinking, they, they copied the words of the song. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, the writer of Hebrews pointed the Jews that he was writing to towards this great theme in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It starts with Jesus and spills out on his family, the church. Look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. 
Consider is a key word, and it means to give full attention. It means to fix your eyes intently on something. It means to closely observe. The writer first calls these holy brethren, these brothers and sisters, who've been called by God with this heavenly calling to fix their thoughts, as the NIV says, on the most faithful one of all. Their attention is directed to Jesus, the faithful one. They were to fix their thoughts on him because, as verse 2 says, he was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to God the Father who called him. The cool thing for us as we consider Jesus' past faithfulness is the fact that we can also understand that because he was faithful in the past, he will be faithful in the present. He is faithful, and he will be faithful to us in the future as well. What a blessing. What an encouragement for us to know that God is faithful, that Jesus is faithful and he will continue to be so. He was faithful to what the Father sent him to do. And in making this point, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, especially in verse 3, is that Jesus is way better than Moses. Much better. Look at verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now when the writer uses the term Moses, he doesn't mean just the man, but he means Moses and also the whole system that God brought in with Moses and through Moses. The Jews revered Moses. There were rabbis that considered Moses the greatest man who ever lived. Greater than angels even. And you know the problem they had with angels. How some people were beginning to worship angels and even thinking that Jesus was lower than an angel. And the writer has already made that point clear and now he makes this point. As great as you think Moses is, people, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Now, never does the writer put Moses down or downplay him. No, criti- no criticizing of Moses is done here. He only wants to appropriately exalt Jesus. And he shows them that as good and faithful as Moses was, Jesus is better and more faithful. And he specifically uses three titles in reference to Jesus that show that he was better. Apostle, builder, and son. In verse 1, we are told to consider Jesus, the apostle, and the high priest of our confession. Now, I keep telling you we're going to get to high priest later, and I'm going to say that again today. We're going to look at that another time. The, the, The idea of high priest was brought in in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, but it is going in greater detail uh, when we get to chapter 4 and on through chapter 10. So high priest is coming, but for now, we're going to look a little bit at that, but mostly at apostle. The, apo- the term apostle represents his, his office, his position, his role. Apostle is one who is sent. A sent one who has all the rights and power and authority of the sender. High priest was also uh, part of the picture for Jesus. Uh, But he is both God's representative to the people as apostle and 
mankind's representative to God as high priest. Not only is he the one in whom God has revealed himself completely, but he is also the perfect example of mankind's uh, obedient response to God. It's kind of the both, the two are just uh, sandwiched together perfectly here. Uh, in tandem, in both these roles, Jesus was faithful. Apostle, though, is not a word we're used to attributing to Jesus. We're much more uh, comfortable saying the Apostle Paul or the Apostles. But Jesus is our Apostle. The Greek word for apostle means something like ambassador, a representative. Jesus is the Father's ultimate ambassador. Think of it this way. God sent a message of love that was so important, so crucial, that he sent it through Christ Jesus. Consider this, that God loves you so much that he sent the ultimate messenger, Jesus, To give the message. And consider also how important it is for us to pay attention to that message. To pay attention to God's ultimate apostle, Jesus Christ. His faithfulness as apostle, uh, one who is sent, showed itself in that he glorified the Father while on earth. And he accomplished the work that he was given to do. Jesus himself said that. And he finished that work on the cross. Now, the combination of apostle and high priest was not a common thing in the Old Testament. It was reserved for a very small and special group of people, among whom Moses was. Moses was an apostle of God to his people. And he was also their most prominent intercessor with God. Now, I know that his brother Aaron had the title high priest, But it was Moses who was Israel's true advocate with God. Remember that sad scene where they built the golden calf? And do you remember how when Moses was uh, up on the mountain longer than they had anticipated and hoped, that they say to Aaron, make us a God? And that Aaron takes the gold and he fashioned it into a golden calf. What did he tell Moses? He says, well, you know what happened was, I kind of threw the gold in and out came this calf. It's like, yeah, right. That's not true. He made the golden calf. So what happened? In response to Moses' request, God pardoned the people. It was Moses who went to God on behalf of the people. Aaron couldn't do it because he was guilty of idolatry. Later on, Moses' position was challenged even by members of his own family. What did God do? He confirmed that Moses was faithful. You know that many of God's spokesmen received their messages from God, their communication from God through dreams and visions. But not so with Moses. God spoke with Moses face to face. In fact, he said that in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. He said, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. But in Christ, God has spoken to us directly. He has spoken in these last days in his Son. And Jesus is the ultimate sent one who fulfilled the perfect will of the Father. 
He's our apostle. He's also the builder. This points to his work. This relates to what he came to do. Look at verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also in all his house. Verse 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. Moses was acknowledged as the chief steward over God's house. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 gave a prerequisite for stewards. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Moses met this requirement. Now the house in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, that's being referred to, in which Moses served faithfully, was not the tent of meeting. It was the entire house of Israel. It was the family of God. And great as Moses was, he was inferior to Jesus. He was lesser than Jesus. And the message was this, that the old order that God brought in through Moses was inferior to the new order that God brought in through Jesus. And while Moses was part of the house he oversaw, he literally uh, came up through the house. He was promoted. He was one of the members of the household. He was promoted to the position of, of chief administrator due to his extreme faithfulness. But Jesus was the builder of the house he was over over the universe and the universe he created, and over the church, his bride, his family, his house. The house, again, not being the structure, but the actual family of people that he was representative over. Moses was a part of God's household, household of faith. But Jesus is the author and initiator of that very household. Moses, a trusted and faithful worker, That Jesus was the owner, the architect, the general contractor, if you will. As a pastor, I initiated some family missions trips. I mentioned it to you before, but for a period of 10 years, we went to Mexico and helped plant a church there. And I led a lot of Bible studies when we were on those trips. But never once did I oversee the work that we were accomplishing down there. I knew better. I left that to people who knew what they were doing. I just said, hand me a hammer, hand me a pickaxe, whatever you want me to do, tell me what to do, but I stayed out of the way. I I wasn't the one who knew how to build a staircase or to build a cinder block wall. But you could tell me where to go, and I would do it. I was just a part of the team. Moses. Moses was a part of the team, too. And guess what he did? He testified to what would be heard later. He testified of Jesus. He testified of a promised Messiah. Moses didn't make the house. Jesus built it. Now the title amongst these three that we're most familiar with when it comes to Jesus is that of son. This relates to his family ties, his relationship with the father. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. Firm until the end. 
Moses' relationship to God's household was that of a servant. Jesus' relationship was that of a son. I want you to see, though, two small but very significant words in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, we see that Moses served in the household as one who was a part of the household. But in verse 6, we see that Jesus rules over the household as the son whom the father had entrusted uh, all authority and had given to exercise his rule and appointed him. The son's authority is greater than the servant's. Moses was not the author, Jesus was. Moses is still great, but not as great as Jesus. And God had warned the people in Moses' day not to speak against Moses. But the warnings against ignoring and denying the claims of the gospel are much more serious, much stronger. Moses, in his day, gave a testimony of things that would be spoken later. He was speaking of the coming Messiah, the promised Christ. He was speaking of a shadow of the good things to come, as Hebrews 10.1 says. The good things have come in Jesus. Easy to see, right? From our vantage point. But we must remember that the first Christians were Jewish Christians. And that some of them had a pretty tough time breaking free from their attachment to Moses, from the traditions and assumptions of the context in which they lived. It's not hard to understand. In some areas of Jewish Christianity, Christ's role was seen as second to Moses. But here it is very clear. The writer makes it very clear. He says to the people, listen, you've got to see this. Jesus is much more than you think. You see, Moses served God. Jesus served the eternal purposes of the Father. He was a son with all the rights and privileges and power of the Father. God himself. Now, as the writer states his case and portrays Jesus as uh, faithful over God's house, as apostle and builder and son, he also gives attention to the church, to the family of the faithful one. If the household that God built, that Moses served, was the people of Israel, what is the household of God today? Over which the Son rules. That would be all believers, all born-again believers, all Christians. We are God's house. It's an amazing thought. We are God's building, God's house. Now, it's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand who Jesus is and who we are in light of what he has done. It's essential for a a healthy Christian life. It keeps us from the depths of discouragement that these Hebrew Christians were experiencing and that were tempted to let go of their confession, to let go of their confidence. Verse 1 tells us that we are holy brethren. Two Common New Testament words are now slapped together in a wonderful way. And we are called holy brethren. Brothers and sisters. Why? 
We're called holy brethren because our holy and heavenly high priest is not ashamed to call us brethren, as we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 11. It should encourage us that Jesus calls us his holy brethren. And the text here contains three words that capture the essence of our relationship with God as members of his family. It's our calling, our confession, and our confidence. All words that start with C and come straight out of the text. I didn't have to conjure them up in any way and force them to all start with a C. They're right here, plain and simple. The first is our calling. Our calling is clear. Our calling is to accept the free salvation that is offered in Christ. Verse 1 says, Holy brethren, partakers or sharers of a heavenly calling. We partake of this calling once we come to know Christ. If you're a believer, God has called you to salvation. Salvation in Christ. Because Jesus is committed to bringing many sons to glory, as chapter 2, verse 10 says, we then are partners in his heavenly calling. This ought to be a great blessing and encouragement to us. Reason for us to press on to maturity. Reason for us to not let go, even through difficult times, even through trials. Even through things that we feel are so strong upon us that it might cause us to break. Our calling is not to this world and all that it offers. It is to a heavenly kingdom that is ruled by Christ. Our calling is to be with Jesus. To rest secure in him. To abide in Christ. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, your hope of glory. The fact that Jesus has called us to himself in salvation and now lives in us is our hope. We rest in the knowledge that nothing can take away what God has given freely as a gift. We who are of faith are most fortunate and most blessed to have been chosen to inherit eternal life. Our citizenship is in heaven. My passport has gotten me into a lot of different countries. I carry it proudly. I bring this to another country and it tells whoever needs to know that I am a citizen of the United States of America. Under the flag of this country, under its armies, the protection, the privileges, the rights that go along with that. And I go into a country and I show them my passport, documents that I indeed have been been uh, born in this country, I'm a, a citizen, and I'm protected. Interestingly, last May, we went to uh, Niagara Falls, stayed on the Canada side. And uh, we realized as we were driving up to the border that we had forgot something very important on this trip. Passports. We figured out, we're just going into Canada for a day. Well, if you want to leave, you need to be able to show where you're, what country you're from. So fortunately for us, we had some friends staying at our house while we were gone, and we called them up, and they faxed us copies of all the kids' passports. That, that was the most important part. So I take this most of the time when I'm out of country. 
But this passport doesn't tell the whole story. What it doesn't tell you is that I am a member of a commonwealth that is not of this sphere. I have a citizenship in heaven. And God himself holds the documentation for anyone who needs to know. Written in the Lamb's book of life. That I belong to a better country. A country that can only be seen by believers. Our calling is a heavenly one. And next we have a confession. I love this. Our confession, quite simply, is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. Look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling, consider Jesus, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our confession flavors and reveals our worldview. Our frame of reference, how we, how we ought to live and how we do live in the world now as believers. What is this worldview? Sadly, there are many professed Christians that have abandoned this worldview. That they no longer hold to it. It's a declaration that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and is coming back. It's a declaration that Jesus is God and that he rules. It's a declaration that the Bible is completely true and it's our ultimate authority for faith and practice. It's a declaration that this world is not our home. That the things of this world are not our final possessions. It's a declaration that we have a dwelling in heaven. It's a declaration that our hope in Christ is secure. That it cannot be moved. That it cannot be changed. It's a declaration that we were so bad that Christ had to die. And that he was the only one whose worth could overcome the debt that needed to be paid. But it's also a declaration that we were so loved and so valued by him that Christ wanted to die. It's stuff like that that makes up our confession. It's stuff like that that shows us and flavors how we live in the world today. It ought to. Jesus made the good confession, 1 Timothy tells us, to Pontius Pilate. Stephen made a confession. Many have made a confession of faith that they were strangers and aliens in the world. Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of people who confessed the truth they, they held to and walking in the, in the footsteps of our Savior, of our crucified Savior, paid the ultimate human penalty for that confession. We're in good company. We're in really good company here. We must confess the truth that we hold, in which we rest. Our courage, though, is rooted in the confidence that we have in Christ. Lastly, our confidence. That we have courage to be bold, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of persecution, because God is faithful even when we aren't. 
Look at verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We're encouraged to maintain a fearless confession and keep our hopes high, anchored by what I call God confidence. Confidence in who God is and what he can do. It's not rooted in self-confidence. I personally am not a naturally self-confident individual. That's why I love the idea of God-confidence. Confidence that he has called us into fellowship with himself. Confidence that he made us his children, that he adopted us into his family. And that we have all the rights and privileges as sons and daughters. And our confidence is rooted in who God is. What Christ has done. Self-confidence can be an empty boast. What happens when someone loses their confidence? They're not able to do what they're supposed to do. They're not able to fulfill their calling. Pressure sometimes makes us lose our confidence. I remember my very first job, one of my very first jobs, was at Douglas Bakery in Downey in the Stonewood Shopping Center. And I would get up every Saturday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, ride my bike down to Douglas Bakery, and wash huge stacks of pots and pans. And I was a hard worker. But Mr. and Mrs. Douglas would stand behind me, and they would say, work harder. Work quicker. They would say, there's a lot of other young guys that we could hire in your place. And I was a really conscientious and hard worker. My parents wanted me to to know the, the value of hard work. And so from an early age, I took little jobs here and there. And at age 15, I went and got my full-fledged uh, paycheck-type job. And I still remember it. When I saw the movie Oliver Twist, I know the, the eras are completely different. But I remember I thought, did they pattern Fagin's character after Mr. and Mrs. Douglas? I didn't have the confidence to stand up to them. I remember, though, asking them at one point why I wasn't making the minimum wage of $1.65, to which they replied... You're underage. You're 15. We can pay you whatever we want. So they paid me $1.15. I was trying to earn money to uh, go to Montana with our cross-country team from Downey High that summer. I only worked there for a couple months. But I'll tell you what. It was a lot of pressure for a kid my age. It was a lot of pressure for a very impressionable, shy, insecure kid. And so I just went along with it. On a much greater scale. Much greater. The pressure was very great on those early Jewish Christians. They were threatened with personal injury, even death itself. But they clung, for in most part, to the hope they professed. Even though their confidence probably hung by a thread most of the time. There's another reason why we lose confidence. It's because of rejection. You may have heard something about William Wilberforce recently. There is a very important 200th anniversary coming this Friday, February 23rd. Because on February 23rd, 1807, 
after two decades of determined effort, as a member of British Parliament, Wilberforce finally brought about the results when the House of Commons voted to abolish the British slave trade. Year after year, he was voted down. But he didn't respond bitterly. At the time when they finally took the vote, uh, almost 20 years in, the other members of British Parliament stood up and gave three cheers for Wilberforce while he just bowed his head and wept because of the culmination of this long battle. There's actually a movie coming out this very Friday called Amazing Grace about, about this story. What you may not hear, though, is about Wilberforce's theology that drove his determination. He had a very strong sense and realistic view of the depravity of humanity, but he had an even higher view of the sovereignty of God and of God's greatness. In fact, some of his writings are, 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 are amazing. He talked about those who either overlook or deny the corruption and weakness of human nature. He said, they acknowledge there is and always had been a great deal of vice and wickedness. But they talk of frailty and infirmity, of petty transgressions, of occasional failings, and of accidental incidents. They speak of man as a being who is naturally pure, that he is inclined to virtue. But he contrasted this with these words. What about the humiliating language of true Christianity? From it we learn that man is an apostate creature. Interesting. Apostate is one who goes away. Apostle is one who is sent. He says, he has fallen from his high original state. He is indisposed toward the good and disposed toward evil. He is tainted with sin, not slightly and superficially, but radically. And to the very core of his being. Even though it may be humiliating to acknowledge these things, still this is the biblical account of man. Those were Wilberforce's words. That's the theology he held. And his realistic view of man allowed him to deal with many hardships, many kinds of disappointment, including the agonizing one that many of his initially reform-minded contemporaries caved under the pressure. As a young man, he was one of 40 members of parliament who covenanted together to do this, not accept a plum appointment to political office, a government pension, or the offer of hereditary peerage. But as the years went by, only Wilberforce and one other stood firm to their covenant. His realism also helped him to, sh- to face sharp attacks. There was a man named James Boswell, who was famous now for writing the biography of Samuel Johnson. But here's what he wrote of Wilberforce. I hate your little whittling sneer, your pert and self-sufficient leer. Be gone for shame, thou dwarf with big resounding name. By the way, those were strong fighting words back then. Wilberforce only stood five foot tall. Other famous writers, including Lord Byron, also wrote pieces aimed to hurt Wilberforce. But he never responded in the same way. He never spoke of his own accomplishments. The one thing he uttered was that simple 
biblical line that captured the thoughts of his heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Knowing that God is faithful. That he will always be true to us no matter what. Builds our confidence. Gives us courage to walk by faith. And the writer of Hebrews encouraged those who felt like turning back. Those who felt like giving in. Those who felt like giving up. He helped them hold fast to their confidence by explaining the benefits of hanging in there. We face the same issues today. They just look differently. They're called by different names. But they're similar issues. And we are also called to faithfulness. And we know how discouraged we get. But there's good news for us. You see, in Christ, the pressure's off. The pressure's off. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. He knows us. He understands us. And holding fast our confidence, as verse 6 states, is not the idea of being saved or keeping ourselves saved. It's a sign of persevering in faith, which is evidence of being saved. Out of all the New Testament writings, Hebrews gives the strongest encouragements to persevere, to keep going, to not give up. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints corresponds to this teaching that true Christians are those who persevere to the end. We are a part of Jesus' household if we hold fast. So how do we persevere? I am not one that is prone to think in brain surgery-like terms. I, I, I like to keep things a little more simpler than that because I need them simple. So I'm going to give you two simple things. The first is this. We persevere by being faithful in the little things, the small things, the things we're called to do. That if we are faithful in those, we will also be faithful in bigger things. And the other is this. We persevere by looking to the faithful one. By fixing our thoughts on Jesus. He covers us. He is the picture of true faithfulness. And true commitment to Jesus is seen over the long haul. Phillips Brooks once said this. He was a famous preacher and he said, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. And I would add boys and girls. Pray to be stronger. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for strength equal to your tasks. God knows what they are. See, what God calls us to do, he enables us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll complete that work. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5 says that we are being built up into a holy spiritual house. So be encouraged today. God is at work among us. Consider Jesus the faithful one. 
Fix your thoughts on him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you thanking you that you are the faithful one. And Lord, we know how weak we are, and we know that we often waver, and we know that our thoughts are not often on you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to obey you. Lord, give us grace to fix our eyes on you, to, as the writer says, consider you, closely examine you. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work in us to will and do your good pleasure. We ask, Lord, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. As we go our way today, I will just say this. We have everything to gain from sticking with it. And much to lose for giving in. The warning is strengthened in this next passage that we're going to look at next week. As the writer takes a look at a common, well-known passage in Psalm 95. That's what we're going to look at next week in terms of the warnings against unbelief. For today, let us fix our hope on Jesus. Let's fix our hope on the truth that we profess. God bless you. Have a great day.